This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Grant Collins will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Good afternoon, everybody. Today, it is May 31st. Just got off of Memorial Day weekend. Um, <clears throat> be talking about a number of issues today. Got Tim back on the podcast. Uh, but before I really get into the crux of it, um, you know, last week we had quite the market comeback. And right now, I mean, it's it's early day, but it's it's kind of starting off as a red start. So I uh, wanted to kind of open up and, um, you know, think if you guys had any thoughts on any of the movers and shakers today so far. Uh, you want me to start it off, Grant, or you want to go? Well, you're you're back with a vengeance, Tim. I think you should kick us off. <laughs> I think it, you know, in terms of the day-to-day market fluctuations, it seems to me that it's going to come down to, you know, uh, warring Fed speakers. I think that Bostic was part of the reason why you had the rally. And even in bear markets, and if we are in a bear market, uh, you're going to have violent um, bear market rallies. But I think Bostic really kicked it off last week with his comments about, you know, maybe we get to September and we have a look. Uh, and everybody started to look at that and say, ooh, maybe the Fed's not going to crush the economy. And then I, I think it was over the weekend that you had Waller, uh, who had comments, who said, look, we, you know, if we have to, we're going to take it past. Um, we're we're going to take it well past uh, tight uh, if that's what we have to do to break the back of inflation. And, you know, if, if I'm if I'm a long term institutional investor, I'm not even sure what I'm hoping for. I'm not even sure what I'm. Um, um, do I want the Fed to really be- break the back of inflation and take rates past neutral uh, and, and and know that at least at that point uh, that I'll be in a better shape to invest? Or a- am I really hoping uh, that the Fed uh, that 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 Powell loses his his will to be the next Paul Volcker? and does what Bostic says, and they sit around in September and wait for it. But look, the Fed has already done a lot, regardless of how much they've actually moved. It's it's the jawboning that matters. It is the guidance that matters. And we've seen financial conditioning, uh, financial conditions tighten a lot already. And while there's all kinds of commentary out there about the consumer still being very strong and the housing market still being very strong, um, Financial conditions are going to slow this economy down, and we are going to see ISMs make their ways towards 50. But you know, you have you'll have Powell meeting with Biden today. Nobody expects anything to really come out of that. The last thing you want is a Fed that looks like it's under the pressure of the president, under the thumb of the president. So uh, we'll wait for some more Fed speak as as the week goes on. Yeah, the two biggest things on everyone's mind right now are higher inflation and slower growth. And then now we see that there is a new oil embargo coming out of the EU. I'm sure we'll hit on that very shortly. But that that also, I think, is is driving it because we are going to continue to see energy prices continue to to rise or or stay at all time highs. In terms of the Fed, you know, it, it seems like it's can't get out of their own way. They waited a very long time. They gave some recommendations on they were going to go above their 2% target. And now we have inflation running rampant and they're trying to play a, a cat and mouse game. It seems like where do we raise rates too fast and cause a recession or do we try and have this soft landing? I, I think in terms of a long-term investor, trying to try, trying to find that soft landing uh, from the Fed is, is really the goal. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think when you look last, last week, you know, the blue chip average closed, you know, up 6.2%. Um, so, you know, it made back some territory. I mean, the S&P still down you know, more than 14%, and then the Dow's down 11% below its records. But, um, you know, um, but yeah, I, I just think that you look at the Eurozone inflation numbers that came in, um, you know, for the seventh straight month, it's been a record high. It was up 8.1%. Uh, U.S. had slowed down a little bit, but, you know, when we're looking at the Fed's, Fed's preferred inflation gauge, that was up by 4.9 in April from a year ago. So, I mean, some of the same issues that have been reoccurring market themes are still very prevalent. Yeah, totally. Fed's got a long ways to go. Fed's got a long ways to go, and the ECB hasn't started yet. So no. Sure as hell have a long ways to go. You know, you look at the ECB's issue, though, it's, it's tougher than the Fed's because the Fed can do something about demand. And if you look at housing and if you look at employment, there's real demand pressure. You don't really even have huge demand pressure in Europe. You just have screaming energy and food inflation. Um, so, you know, Lagarde will tighten over there, but it, it's, it's unclear how much of that tightening will, how much of an effect that will really have, because really they just have a crushing supply issue around the energy markets. Yeah, it seems like they're still, they're still in quantitative easing mode, yeah. uh, still, still in their buy bond buying. So even though they're, they're talking about a stagflationary environment, <laughs> they're still very loose on the bond buying program. And it seems like a big aspect of that in, in her comments are they are going to be the most heavily impacted by the Ukraine-Russia conflict, which makes complete sense because they are heavily energy yeah. importers from Russia. But again, we did just see that embargo. So that's going to also have another impact specifically on the on the energy prices. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'd say two of the main things that are really driving oil prices right now are seasonality. Um, we're getting into the summer months and then in the fall is usually when oil is kind of at its highest. And then uh, secondly, just in terms of we've got really low CapEx investment um, on behalf of major energy companies. Uh, uh, Tim, Tim, uh, how about we get into those two and you know, what are your thoughts on uh, each of those? Yeah, I mean, seasonality is what it is. Uh, you know, I just drove back from the Jersey Shore yesterday and there's a hell of a lot of driving demand. Uh, so, so you know, the driving demand is going to come back. There's no two ways about it. Uh, diesel demand uh, is, is going higher. And yet you just don't have refining spare capacity. And I'm speaking of the United States, but I could just as well be speaking about Europe in terms of refining spare capacity. Uh, you know, I'll give you a stat. That in 2013, if you look at the top three majors, the global majors, Exxon, Chevron, Shell, their 2013 CapEx was $111 billion. Fast forward nine years later, 2022, $100 oil, CapEx is $57 billion. We have less refining capacity now than we did before the recession. I'm sorry, than we did before, you know, COVID. Uh, and the and the recession that came from COVID. Uh, but yeah, we just do not have enough refining capacity. So while there's no CapEx in the upstream and everybody focuses on that, you know, we've talked about the fact that none of the public players really added rigs in the Permian. Some of the privates did, but it's not probably much enough to make a difference. The other issue is downstream. It's CapEx. And one of the weird unintended consequences of peak oil 
is peak investment. And you are just not going to see the majors, the ENPs, the refiners spend a lot of money to grow capacity. You are going to have almost no capacity. You're going to have no greenfield expansion. You might have some deep bottlenecking and so forth uh, among the downstream guys, but that's it. So, uh, you know, it's one of the things that I talk about where the Fed is going to uh, push and push and push to push down demand, but we still have such a capacity problem that unfortunately I think we're going to be looking at $5 gas and $6 diesel uh, even as we come to the back end uh, of the summer. And that puts a lot of pressure on the Fed to keep tightening because the knock-on effects of higher energy prices uh, are, are go through the entire economy. And the seasonality thing is, I think, one thing that people do miss out on, and it makes a lot of sense. It's all of a sudden you see everyone with their RVs driving across the country. Another big piece is is diesel because that is the lifeblood of how farmers use crops. A lot of our trucking industry is all on diesel. So that is still just a, a big aspect that I think people overlook is when people start driving around or there's the farming season when, when people are harvesting crops, we, we see a, a higher demand and prices typically rise in the summer. I do think that the CapEx is an interesting point because we have had seen such a shift in in really, I would say, investor sentiment on these large oil companies. So if you think about the the historic move last year that that uh, engine number one, the active hedge fund, finally got three board seats on Exxon's, which was really hard to get anyone um, on their board of directors. So we saw that. We also see BlackRock, who's a 5% owner of ExxonMobil shares, really want to prioritize climate change. And and so we, we, we have the sentiment of wanting climate change, but then we're in this period where we are going to need oil and oil derivatives to get to a, a green energy. And so for them to try and add more investment when we know where the puck is going just doesn't seem like a, a good decision from the top for these large oil giants. Well, I do think where you will see some spending from these guys will be on the green side, but it's so small. And look, there are unintended consequences there too. Look at look at look at what's happened with diesel, uh, with green diesel, and adding uh, soybeans, which are at eighteen bucks a bushel, I think, as we wake up this morning. Uh, adding diesel and yellow grease and so forth into uh, into the diesel mix has eaten up some refining capacity and had a negative impact on prices. So, um, look, I'm a I'm a huge believer uh, that we have to uh, transition away from fossil fuels. The point is that is that the oil companies know that it's coming and they are going to uh, continue to shrink their CapEx budgets. We're talking almost down 50% for the three big majors over nine years. I don't see why that trend wouldn't continue. And it suggests to me that we're going to continue to see very high energy prices, even in a slower economy. And that's a disaster for, for U.S. and Europe. I mean, it's a disaster globally. I mean, when when you look at some of the Paris Agreement calls, I mean, McKinsey and company stated that they'd have to spend trillions of dollars over the next decade. I mean, seven hundred fifty billion for carbon capture technology, uh, to another two hundred billion for EV infrastructure. So, I mean, despite that, I mean, and then despite you know, we talk about what's going on with rigs. Uh, it really comes down to investors want 
you know, they want some dividends and oil obviously hasn't been a very performing asset class over the last decade. So I think a lot of these guys just want some of their money back. Hell yeah. That is 100% what is happening. Big investors want their money back. They do not want to see CapEx spend and they are winning. They are going to continue to win. There is one correct answer when the big investor comes into the boardroom, uh, when you're on the when you're on the road as an ENP company or if you're Exxon. What are you doing with the cash? Correct answer is I'm giving it back to you, sir. <laughs> May I have another? <laughs> so let's uh, we just hinted on this a little bit, but let's change gears and let's talk about how we think the Fed is doing. So we saw. Pershing Square hedge fund manager Bill Ackman come out and say that he's worried that the Fed is falling really behind the curve. Tim, I know you've had some comments that they are greatly behind the curve. We saw a 50 basis point right, uh, rate hike in the last uh, meeting. People are anticipating maybe one this or the next. We see the uh, market committee meeting June 14th and 15th. What's your take on if we're going to see a rate hike coming and how do you think that the Fed has done over the last couple of months? Yeah, I mean, I think they're playing catch up. I think they started way, way, way too late. Look, Powell thought that much of this was going to be transitory. And that was an intuitive thing to assume that once you got post COVID and, and you got supply chains back online and then, uh, you know, COVID has lasted longer, Russia has happened. Uh, has has the Russia Ukraine invasion happened, uh, and then you just have um, the reality that fixing supply chains in a low capex world is going to take a lot longer. So I think that you know when Powell came out and said, "I want to speak to the American people," I think that was the sign to me, and it was wild because the market actually rallied because he initially, you know, he said he wasn't going to do seventy five bips. But then the next day we rolled over again because the real point he was trying to make is that like I get it and I'm and I'm sorry to the American people because you know it is it is the bottom half of the economy that gets killed on energy and rent and food inflation. So I think he has seen the light. I was surprised by the Bostic comments uh, last week, but outside of that, I think the Fed has stayed on uh, the right theme that they're going to do 50 bips and they're going to keep doing 50 bips. I would be shocked if they do anything other than continue on uh, on on 50 bips and you stay around this kind of terminal rate at around two and three quarters. Uh, the issue is that if if inflation, especially on the energy side, on the food side, on the rent side, even on the wage side, really stays um, really stays sticky. And that's why you keep hearing stagflation. And you're not just hearing stagflation from the the David Rosenbergs or the people considered the perma bears of the world. I mean, you're hearing people like Larry Summers talk about stagflation. You're hearing Bridgewater and Sequoia talk about stagflation. So uh, Mohammed El Arian talking about st stagflation. So the Fed knows um, that they have to keep credibility here. Uh, and I don't think you're going to see outside of an absolute market meltdown, which itself tightens financial conditions, are you going to see the Fed be in any way dovish here over the next few months? And we did see those comments coming out of Bridgewater from Greg Jenkins. Um, he said that we're on the verge of stagflation. And a lot of the times uh, when we do expect the central bank to step in to help consumers, 
that the Fed will now be hamstrung by these tightening financial conditions about raising rates to bring inflation under control. So when, when people would be looking for um, the Fed to step up to increase growth, they actually are going to be doing the opposite and, and tightening this rampant inflation. So one thing to look at there, Jensen also estimates that 40% of the U.S. equity market uh, can only survive with new inflows of cash, new buyers, because they're not generating enough cash flow themselves. And this yeah. is a historic high, similar to what we saw in 1999 and 2000, right before the dot-com crash. So he, he is bringing some similarities bet between those two. But to come back to your Fed comments, Tim, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think that transitory uh, speech where we are going to be comfortable with inflation going over our target uh, got a little out of hand uh, for the Fed, and it seems to be biting them in the ass a little bit now. But I, I do think we're going to see a 50 basis point hike, uh, if not in June, definitely in July. And we're going to see that target really start to float up by the end of the year, I think, passing that 3% rate. Yeah, um, you, you know, you mentioned the fact that 40% of these are reliant on um, cash flow. Uh, so, I mean, despite that, and despite the inflation and, and the PC and everything else, you know, we've discussed, I, I mean, you had uh, Moynihan from Bank of America, you know, the other week, right, say that consumers are still in good shape and they're still not over leveraged. Uh, and, you know, when you're looking at bank savings and checkings accounts, uh, still higher than the pandemic, and then they are spending 10% more so far in May than, than, the, than year over year, right? So, I mean, at what point does that start to give way, do you think? Um, you know, we have all these external pressures, and at the same time, the U.S. consumer has remained pretty remarkably resilient. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it is – I was kind of surprised by Moynihan's comments because – you have seen the savings rates come down. You've seen uh, the uh, M2 and M3 come down to around pre-pandemic levels where we were already getting tight on savings. I think the savings rate is down, I saw, to 4.4%, which is, again, uh, getting to fairly low levels. I, I just think there's a problem in looking at average uh, because it just doesn't represent uh, well that bottom half of the consumer that is really starting to struggle. You're starting to see uh, you're starting to see charge offs starting to tick up. You're starting to see credit usage start to pick up. You're starting to see uh, responses uh, to surveys around food and housing and security start to tick up. So while Moynihan might be looking at Merrill Lynch accounts uh, that are doing just fine and, and have uh, grown still net net since the beginning of the pandemic, I don't think it does a very good job at capturing that average American who really is 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 moved negatively by where gas and food prices and rent prices are. And we have seen deposits also grow in the pandemic, which is, I think, a big reason for his comments is that we have seen really checking and savings never been this flush in their entire lives. And consumers are still spending because um, prices are i mean it 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 i think we're at the at the tipping point where all of a sudden people are going to start carpooling to work or taking other transport and then also travel right i mean i just looked at t booking a flight and it was 
two X larger than than what it yeah. was pre pandemic level. So I think all of a sudden you're going to see uh, a, a lot of travel come down and and people taking vacations uh, locally and not having to to pay for airport. So I think that's going to be a, another big hit to the hospitality business, which was the 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 biggest hit during the pandemic because all of a sudden restaurants were closed people couldn't go into restaurants and and now if we see travel go down that could have a, another big impact as well yeah that pent up there there does seem to be really significant pent up demand for travel and the airlines and other parts of the travel economy are slow to add capacity so that area has gotten really really tight i've had the same observation around uh airfares um but but the bottom line is you've got to be forward looking and financial conditions have tightened meaningfully and they've tightened rapidly and there is a lag. That's why when you look at these charts around ISMs and financial conditions, you're looking at them on three months and six month lag. So what Moynihan is observing today may be true, but it very well is unlikely to be true three months and six months from now. And it's helpful for his position if the consumer still thinks everyone else is spending because all of a sudden his credit card business looks better. All of a sudden he still has his deposits. So there there, there may be some uh, bias behind his comments too. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we can all safely say that banks and broker dealers are not in the business of being bearish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't get me so started on it. we talked about this earlier. Research. Oh. I was going to say, we talked about this earlier, but about how the European Central Bank and the Fed are really in two different positions. We've seen that the euro against the dollar is at a new five-year low. We've heard comments that the war is, is stagflation shock for Europe. Where do you think the ECB stands today in comparative to the Fed? And, and what's your outlook on, on, on Europe right now? Well, that's definitely a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, I'd say I'd say even slightly more scared. I, I just don't think she's got a good option. I'm talking about Lagarde. I just she doesn't have good options. I mean, at least in the United States, we've got this wage growth. And even while there is not there is negative real wage growth, you still have some wage growth. Uh, whereas in Europe, you don't you don't have super tight uh, labor markets and, and, and super strong demand. So I just think that all they can do is is. Um, I mean, look, I, they have to remove accommodation. They have to strengthen the euro versus the dollar. They have to have credibility as well. Uh, and the weakening euro is inflationary. So by itself, they have to defend the currency, um, just like the, the just like the Brits do. Um, but I, I just I don't see a really any good options. I mean, uh, they are going to force uh, the eurozone into uh, a recession because all they can do is reduce demand. Uh, but they have to just hope and pray that somehow or another uh, they get a break on the energy side. I, I just, uh, I mean, I, I don't mean to sound uh, that pessimistic about it, but I, I just, I, I have not heard a scenario where she's got any good options. And it does make sense so, if you think about it. Oh, go ahead, Drew. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just, it's tough too. I mean, I just feel like so much of it's conflict based. Um, the U.S. has given over $50 billion to Ukraine, uh, not to mention, I mean, you've got countries like Germany spending $100 billion and, and also giving some hard supplies. It, it just, it's a matter of how much dry powder we can give to the conflict because while the Russians were pushed out of the north, they've done 
better in the East, but it's still more or less a stalemate. And and mm-hmm. God knows how long that stalemate can last. And and things yeah. still aren't you know getting out of the port. So, I mean, I mean it's it's the big you know elephant in the room, so to speak. It certainly is. It certainly is. Um, and, and that that kind of brings us up, I guess. We've got another geopolitical hot spot, uh, Taiwan. I mean, Biden's comments were taken by some to be a change of policy and then taken by others to say, uh, look, it's in lines with the one China stance, um, even if he's indicating, you know, um, that that we'd be militarily involved in the case of an invasion. So I'm just kind of wondering what your guys' thoughts were on that. Uh it's obviously contentious if we have, you know, a peer-to-peer war in Europe, then all of a sudden one springs out in Asia. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're just looking at a de-escalating, I mean, just geopolitical situation. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't think Biden's uh, comments were in any way a mistake. Um, I think that even people who do not like the president have to admit that he's got um, pretty shrewd uh, history around foreign policy. He understands foreign policy. He understands the issue, uh, of China and Taiwan. So I think it was quite clear, um, that he intentionally wanted to make it clear to, um, Chinese officials that the United States, uh, will not tolerate, um, more aggressive action there. And, and I think you just see that that relationship continues to struggle. I mean, I, I think I would have guessed that a post-Trump administration, a Biden administration would have taken down, you know, you take down the tariffs, right? Why not take down the tariffs? Hell, I think, was it the Peterson Institute who estimated this week that it would have a positive 0.3% impact on CPI? You know, every 0.3% matters when we're talking about inflation right now. But then Biden turns around and he looks soft on China. Now we're going into a midterms and Biden cannot afford to look soft on China. So I, I don't see that relationship improving uh, anytime soon. Uh, I don't I have no insight as to whether or not um, what China plans to do around Taiwan, uh, but they certainly want to keep their options open. And, you know, I don't get the presidential daily briefing every day, but Biden does. And maybe he sa- he sees something in there that suggests that they are. Uh, maybe moving uh, further in that direction, as has been speculated. Um, but I, I think the overall take here is that the the economic take should be that China wants to be an unchecked hegemonic power uh, in the Pacific, and that includes Taiwan. And the United States is going to uh, rattle swords to make sure that uh, the Chinese remain checked. And I think that the relationship will remain difficult. And I think the economic consequences of that are things like tariffs staying in place. And you will see more uh, reliance on on domestic um, production of semiconductors and, and other things that we import from China. And ultimately, as is our big long term theme here, that is that is going to be long term inflationary. That's what kind of matters. That that is kind of the takeaway from that, from my perspective. In the semiconductor market, and that's why we're seeing car prices go up because there's a shortage of semiconductors. Semiconductors go into to so much and in, in are essential for a lot of the manufacturing, which is why we've seen a lot of domestic investment in bringing chip manufacturers back on shore. 
and it, it and it's going to be um, a, a big sticking point over the next decade between China on the rise and the United States trying to not be so dependent on on Chinese manufacturing. So bringing things home, looking at other different supply uh, supply com- countries that we can we can leverage. But overall, <clears throat> Biden's comment, comments, I, I think he did have to have to say something and make his point known. The, the only mistake I would say is and and. It seems like some lawmakers agree is is him then walking back his comments. So if that's truly what he believes and that was his reaction to the question, then he should have stuck with it instead of now retreating. Um, it seems like he, he he doesn't have a firm grasp exactly how he wants to to do Taiwan and and nor do I think there is a right or wrong, completely right or wrong answer because it is a really sticky situation where. Do we really want to go into to a military conflict with the Chinese when we only see what's happening with the the Russians on on the other side in Ukraine? So it, it's it, it is a very interesting point and something that we're going to have to closely watch over the next couple of years and and uh, really could be a big conflict point between our two economies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one thing I'll note, I guess, the whole development is you've seen Taiwan. Um, kind of respond accordingly to what's gone on in Ukraine. Uh, coining it like the porcupine defense, you know, I feel like there's a thought that's like we've spent so many years just building up conventional forces. I mean, when in fact, if our island just got a few hundred switchblades, you know, we might be in a better shape than if we got tanks and and boats that just at the end of the day won't won't last against the Chinese Navy. Um, so that's interesting. I, we, we mentioned the fact that, uh, I mean, if we got rid of tariffs with China, um, that would lower the CPI down 0.3%. We saw at the Asian summit, um, you know, there's it's not joining TPP, but there's discussion amongst the Quad, you know, which is India, Japan, um, Australia, and the U.S. about some kind of lowered tariff deal and along with some other countries. Uh, I mean, they're framing it as like a geopolitical deal, of course, but at the end of the deal, they, it's, I, I, it is a trade deal. They just don't want to advertise it as a free trade one. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that kind of thing makes sense. Hell, I would have, I would have told you the TPP made a lot of sense, and then Hillary backed away from it. Um, but yeah, I mean, these are these are these are trade deals that may make an impact or may not make an impact over a long period of time, uh, it, and it and it just shows again that the United States is looking at. How they can diversify reliance on Chinese imports. All right, gents. Well, I think that's all the I had today. Um, anything we might have overlooked? Mm, not from my perspective. The Mets in first place, eight and a half out ahead, commanding lead in the NL East. But that's about it. All right. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. Well, thanks both of you guys. Appreciate your time. Um, for all our listeners, thanks for the likes and subscribes, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. 
The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.